0: Welcome to Women on the Verge of a Financial Breakthrough, a podcast where we're figuring out finance one dumb question at a time. I'm the
1: dummy, Caitlin Meredith, a coach and mediator based in the Bay Area, and I'm Sarah Glaikis. I'm an investor, advisor, and founder of Black Barn Financial and the Austin Women's Investing Group, which can be found on Meetup and Facebook.
0: Before we start, Do you know a woman who might be on the verge of a financial breakthrough? Will you text her a link to our show and maybe two other friends while you're at it? Also, please, if you can, leave us a review. This helps other women on the verge find us. And we read them and they make us happy cry. We have a special guest today who is an expert in something, again, Sarah is not the expert in everything, which is always a shock to me in financial matters, but we've invited <laughs> somebody else, Anne Garcia, who is an actual expert in how to pay for college, which is something that's on everybody's mind that I know who has small kids, medium kids, big kids all the kids uh, because it's so terrifying. So, Anne, why don't you introduce yourself? You just wrote a book, How to Save for College. Did I get the title right?
2: How to Pay for College. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, I said save. Yeah, pay. That's (laughs) Both of those are important. Saving
2: is a big part of that, but, um, but there are lots of pieces of how to pay for it. Yeah.
0: So tell everybody about your background, how you came to this, et cetera.
2: Yeah. So I'm a fee-only financial advisor. Um, I have a firm in Portland, Oregon called Independent Progressive Advisors, and we work with a lot of mid-career professionals. Um, early in my career as an advisor, uh, I noticed I was talking with a lot of two groups of people. You know, one were parents who just couldn't figure out how, they, how to even approach this thing called college. Um, and another was young adults who were struggling to do kind of any of the basic Building blocks of adulthood that we think of, you know, buying a house or saving for retirement or even setting up emergency savings, because they had taken out so much, um, taken on so much um, student loan debt um, uh-huh. that their student loan payments were just taking all of their, you know, really taking all of their free, um, all of their free cash flow and and then some. And I I sort of realized that if I could. Help that first group of people, you know, the parents who are struggling with this question. I might minimize the number of the second group of people who who were um, who were out there by by helping families make better decisions about how they're going to um, how they're going to get their kids educated in a way that that works for for everyone. And so I started out, you know, I realized I was answering the same questions again and again and again. And so one year as a um, new year's resolution slash self-improvement project, I decided I would start a blog where I would just kind of write all the answers to all these questions that I was getting all the time. And so, um, so I generous
0: of you to like, it's amazing. Yeah. I love that idea that you're like everybody, these frequently asked questions that are in everybody's head. And then you turned it into like a blog where you're giving away freely, all the wisdom that you have about this stuff. That's stressing everybody out.
2: You know, honestly, that's something I feel really passionate about. I mean, I I feel like, you know, as advisors, we talk so much about changing lives and making people's lives better. The people who need our help the most are the ones who don't have access to to people like us. And and so if there's an opportunity for me to provide good financial guidance, I feel like that's part of just being a good human and a good citizen. Um,
0: You're one of us. I love it. I think that's also so important because it's so scary that like by the time someone's googling it, they have so much angst like built up, like it's such a brave move to even Google it. So <laughs> if they found your blog and actually got really well researched, good advice, that's just such like, that's amazing. I'm very glad that it exists. What's the name of the blog?
2: So um, originally it was called the College Financial Lady. Um, and um, now it's called um, How to Pay for College. So my website is okay. how to payforcollege.com. There's tons and tons of free college planning um, resources there. Over time, so I've been writing this blog for almost a decade now, like my self-improvement project. I guess I didn't get enough <laughs> <letter> to stop. <laughs> uh, became a little bit unwieldy so um so I um so I I wrote a book out of it and sort of and that out.
0: just came out right now like it, it came, came out in July
2: out of yeah. yeah of so
0: 2022
2: July yeah. of 2022 yep
0: so this um, is like the most accurate it will ever be is like the, the financial information that it has in it right now
2: Exactly. Although, you know, I feel like, sure, there are numbers and nuances to it that change on an ongoing basis, but conceptually how you approach a goal like college, um, you know, from a big picture perspective is going to be the same, you know, whether it's post FAFSA simplification next year or pre FAFSA simplification this year, Um, you know, like the
0: strategy part stays
2: the same. Even exactly. If. Exactly.
0: Because the numbers part. So I was looking at your website, which is just amazing, has so much useful information in it. And I had to like read this section three times. Um, cost increases in the 30 years from 1986 to 2016. Public university cost of attendance increased by almost 500%. And then private college costs increased by a mere four hundred and sixty seven percent. The same time period median household income increased by thirteen point six percent. Like we have a numbers problem there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like closed down the website and I was like, I oh, know,." <laughs> <not. laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, but, but here's, here's the good news. You know, the headline numbers we see, the list price of college tuition has gone up by 500%, uh, you know, as, as I said. However, very few people pay the list price of college. Um, there's another number that's more important, which is the net price. And the net price is what you actually pay um, net of scholarships, grants, tax credits, um, and, and all kinds of other things. And the net price of college has actually remained constant for uh, about since the, um, since the financial crisis, 2008,
0: 2009. Oh. What so, talking about that list price though? I want to understand that. What does that mean? Like if I went on the university of Texas at Austin website and said, how much is tuition Would that number I got for 2022 be their list price. That is the list price, right? right. Yeah. And then the net price is after I apply, my kid applies for financial aid, like all the other take all the other variables taken in consideration for my individual child, my own, our family price is going to be different than other people's family price
2: correct I mean college is a lot like travel you know don't ask the person in the airplane seat next to you what they paid for their ticket it's not going to be the same number as yours same thing don't ask the person in sitting next to you in your college classroom what they paid because it's going to be it's going to be different from yours and to give you an idea how big that gap between list price and net price can be so the average there's a statistic that's tracked called the um, average tuition discount rate, and it is more than fifty percent. Wow! So people actually pay less than half of what's charged in the form of in the form of college tuition.
0: So what is that list price about? It's for rich people, like it's so yeah. they can get as much money as they can from people that actually have that cash. Exactly. So- Okay. Yeah.
2: I mean, think of it this way. If you're at Stanford and deciding what tuition is going to be next year and you say, well, let's see, this year we're charging $82,000 and we turned away 20,000 people who were willing to pay $82,000. What should we charge next year? $85,000 or $75,000? So they're pricing it as high as
0: they think they can get away with to still get a significant proportion of applicants that can actually can and will pay that.
2: Yep. Because lots and lots of people are are willing to do that. And I think that's one of the really unfortunate things that we don't talk about when we talk about why college is expensive. College is expensive because lots and lots of people are willing to pay a lot of money to send their kids to college.
0: Wow. I'm, like an idiot. I've just been thinking it's like, well, gas prices, like that has been like anchored in real inflationary costs, like paying that many people infrastructure for a university, but it's not, they, they're profiting by an alarming
2: amount. I mean, you have, so you have three groups of colleges, right? You have the private nonprofit colleges, which are like the Stanfords, the Ivy Leagues, you know, the four-year degree granting institutions. So they are nonprofits, but they might have administrators who are paid, you know, millions of dollars a year. Um, And then you have public universities. They are likewise not running a profit, but they're paying some pretty nice salaries to a lot of administrators. And then you have the private for-profit colleges. And those are the ones that are all, was in the news about defrauding students and stuff like that. Those guys are running big profit. Right, (laughs) right. um, Everyone else is yeah, making money off of students, but paying it out, you know, somewhere else, somewhere else along the line. And, and, you know, one way to look at it is if you've got this pool of people who is willing to pay 80 something thousand dollars a year to educate their kids. And by collecting that money, that opens up a pool of dollars to provide scholarships to all the people who can't.
0: They, they effectively subsidize the tuition for people that can't pay it.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, what I would like people to take away from this is so many people are like, well, it's $25,000 to go to my in-state school or $80,000 to go to a private school. No, it's not. You can find a college that will educate your child at whatever price you're willing to pay, where you get into trouble is by saying, it's really important to me that my child goes to an Ivy league, or it's really important to me that my child goes to you know X, Y, or Z school because every school has its own priorities for how they allocate financial aid and scholarship dollars. Some will allocate them to your child, others won't. You know, my son attends an out-of-state public university. It costs the same for him to go there as it would to go in-state. My daughter attends the world's most expensive university, and it was her second cheapest choice once all of the financial aid and scholarships were, were layered Wait, in. Can we know the names of these institutions? Yes, I've actually <laughs> disclosed them privately. So my son is at the University of Arizona. In fact, I was just down there okay. visiting him. Um, and my daughter's at the University of Chicago. The
0: University of Chicago is the current most expensive university in the world? it is but as their list price their list price is the highest
2: well and the other thing that that i find kind of interesting with their list with their list price is this is a college that is extraordinarily generous with all of its students um colleges can only offer scholarships for things that are part of the cost of attendance so for example they include health insurance in the cost of attendance so if you have health insurance you opt out of the health insurance and you're paying $5,000 a year less, you know, coming out of the gate. So, so every college has its own way of how they calculate what their cost of attendance is too. just to further muddy, (laughs) muddy the conversation. Here's the good news. Every college is required to have on its website, a tool called a net price calculator, a net price calculator. Okay. And you can punch in all of your family's financial info into that net price calculator. And it'll tell you what students like you paid to go to their college in, in the current year. Oh, so they're super transparent about it. They're super transparent about it. They're not, you know, this isn't a binding offer of financial aid, but I know for my daughter applied to a lot of private schools and doing the net price calculators was part of the process for her because we, we sure as heck weren't going to pay $80,000 a year for her to go to college, but we felt like as a student, she was a really good fit for, uh, for a private school. So we did all, you know, we did net price calculators for all the schools she was interested in and, and everywhere she was accepted, her offer came within $2,000 of what the net price calculator had, had told us.
0: Okay. But wasn't it for you kind of personally and professionally, you're like, Oh, I'll take them show me your list price University of Chicago I'm coming for you I'm the college finance lady <laughs> Just like were you secretly hoping she'd go for the most expensive one as like this personal challenge to see what you could get the tuition down to
2: What was funny is I dragged her to U Chicago to look at it cuz she was interested in a different college that was in Chicago and I was like we're not going all the way to Chicago to look at one college so find some others and then we'll talk about going there She's like I don't know any other ones I just have a friend who goes to this this school and loves it. And so, so I was like, well, I know you Chicago, I'm a financial advisor. I use DFA funds. (laughs) We'll go there.
0: And she ended up wanting to go there. Yeah. And you got to use your, like you hone your professional skills for your personal benefit in this case.
2: Exactly. And I mean, I mean, there are lots of reasons why UChicago ended up being less expensive than than other colleges that she was looking at. A big one is they use the FAFSA as their financial aid form, not the CSS profile. Can you just quickly go through what does FAFSA stand for? Yeah. Why stop (laughs) using those letters that scare me. So there are, there are two financial aid forms that, um, that you use when you apply to college. One is the FAFSA and the FAFSA is the free application for federal student aid. So if you want any penny of financial aid, or if you want to take out a student loan, or if you want to be considered for work study, you have to file the FAFSA. And you, who's the you in that? you is the student and the parent
0: okay and there's two different like the parent gets their copy and
2: the student gets electronically the student has a set of questions they answer and the parent has a set of questions that that they answer so so you so so everyone who's going to college files the fafsa um and they have a, a set methodology they use to calculate what's called your expected family contribution and that's being renamed to be the student aid index because people logically assume if that's my expected family contribution, that's what my family should expect to contribute to college. And in fact, that's just what their calculation says you could pay and schools can do whatever they want with that. Um, really important point, colleges are under no obligation to meet, or to meet your financial need. So even though you file the FAFSA, apply for financial aid, um, that doesn't mean you're gonna get it at your top choice college. So there's a second financial aid form called the CSS Profile, and the CSS Profile is used by about 400 private colleges in addition to the FAFSA, and the CSS Profile collects a broader range of information from families, so there are a couple of really important differences. One is that if your parents are divorced, only one parent has to complete the FAFSA, both parents have to complete the profile. The profile has questions about things like what's the value of your home equity? Um, it includes some assets that aren't included on the FAFSA. So almost every family will have a higher expected family contribution from the CSS profile than they will from the FAFSA. But if that that's only
0: if your kid is applying to a private institution and when you're hoping for, well,
1: well, and when you're we're not talking pain pain to people that don't, aren't. A, yes. Okay. <laughs>
0: right. <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> so already I can feel people be really scared because they're like, yeah, well, I have a house in Austin or the Bay Area that happens to have like appreciated like crazy,
2: but that has no bearing on whether I'm going to be on whether able I can pay spend- for college or not. Yeah. Right. Cause I'm certainly yeah. not going to sell my house to pay for, to pay for college. Yeah. and, and, the thing with the CSS profile, so so with the FAFSA, it's like, here's the data that we collect and here's how we calculate your expected family contribution. And you can go and they have a worksheet that shows it. So you can you know calculate it all yourself and you'll get the exact same numbers when you actually go to file it. With the CSS profile, colleges have a great deal of latitude in how they use those numbers. So home equity is a great example. Some colleges just completely disregard that because as we all know, we're not selling our houses to send our kids to college. Right. Um, others will cap the value of your home equity at a multiple of your income? I don't know what that means, but do I need to? Let's say you own a million dollar house and you own it free and clear. So technically you have a million dollars of home equity. Right. If your salary is a hundred thousand dollars, many colleges will say, we're not going to look at the whole million dollars worth of home equity. We're going to look at 1.2 times your income. So we're going to only consider a hundred and twenty thousand dollars of your home equity as Okay. as as an asset. So it's very opaque. Colleges can do lots of different things. I mean it, when you when you actually file the profile colleges can add supplemental questions like I mean, one of them asked what cars we drive and whether we own them or lease them, you know, and wow. another one asked whether we had spent any money for our kids to have a summer job. I'm like, do we have to include the gas that they <laughs> used to drive there? You know? Wow.
0: Is that really getting into a level of upper middle class privilege to like even the playing field that like, yeah, your kid achieved all these things, but you were really bankrolling the whole thing or? You know,
2: I think it, I I think there's. There's a degree of that whole wow you worked in um you know such and such medical research lab oh because you did it wasn't really a job it was a summer school program that you <laughs> applied to and actually you were paying to do the job not the job was paying I gotcha. so i think okay. you know i my my guess would be that, yeah, it is to identify, you know, what is something that the that the student actually earned on their own versus something that they had access to because of who their parents are.
0: I am feeling, very threatened by all of this. (laughs) Not that I have all these millions that I'm trying to hide, but I can imagine feeling very vulnerable putting your assets on one of these forms because you don't know what's gonna happen to the information. It feels like it could be used against you or your kid might not like so, Like, is it illegal to lie on it? Like, I'm
2: not suggesting anyone should lie, but like (laughs) okay. So 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 yeah, it is important to provide accurate information. Now There are people who don't want to do, you know, who who don't want to file the FAFSA. They're not necessarily sending all of your information to the schools. The schools will get what your expected family contribution is and they'll get certain of the data fields that came through to to calculate it. They're not getting access to your full tax return. They're not getting actual statements from your investment account. The FAFSA asks what's asks what's the total value of your assets, not what's in this child's 529, what's in that child's okay. 529. It's not as invasive a process as, as it might seem okay. like it would be. Now, another thing that's really important to remember, because um, so financial aid is, you, you are eligible for financial aid if your expected family contribution or student aid index is less than the cost of attendance at a college.
0: Wait, can, I need to hear that again.
2: Okay. So the FAFSA or the CSS profile calculates a number called your expected family contribution. It's largely based on your income. If that number is less than the cost of attendance at a college, the list price of attendance. So
0: my family, the the college my kid wants to go to is $25,000 a year, but my, the FAFSA says I could probably come up with 10,000 a year. So there's a gap between what the price would be and how much I could do. Exactly.
2: If your expected family contribution is higher than the cost of attendance, then you are not eligible for need-based financial aid. So think of okay. it like student applying to a public school Public school list price $25,000 expected family contribution $30,000 that student is not eligible for need based aid. That okay. doesn't mean there's nothing for you. <laughs> right, it means you are not to get... look for merit scholarships. Okay, so okay. my son, for example, gets a merit scholarship at his college. Um, and, and that makes it cost about the same for him to go there as it would cost to stay in state and go to university of Oregon. It has nothing to do with our ability to pay. It has to do with him being a good student. Okay. And very, very many colleges offer merit scholarships. Every college offers some form of discount. It might be on the basis of need. It might be on the basis of merit. It might be both. Or just, like, we need a,
0: like, field hockey player. hmm Like, right? Like, the sports
2: is a huge
1: that's merit. That's merit based typically. Oh, sports are very
2: commonly misunderstood. Um, you are more likely, most students are more likely to get advantages in the admissions process than they are to get scholarships for, for their sports. There's a short list of sports that provides full ride scholarships to every student on the roster. You know, for men, that's football and basketball for women, it's basketball, tennis, gymnastics, uh, and, volleyball. Most sports, most college sports, and only at the D1 level. So most college sports are what's called equivalency sports. And an equivalency sport means we've got X number of scholarships. You know, the NCAA says you can have this number of scholarships on this team. So I think for soccer, it's like 9.9 scholarships. There might be 25 or 30 students on the roster and there's less than 10 scholarships that get divided among those 25 or 30 students. So you can't count on that.
0: For... So no, you,
2: you, can't, you, you can't count on that. Where, where athletes do do well is by going to, for example, D3 schools where they don't offer athletic scholarships at all, but they can offer merit scholarships to those students. So like my nephew was a soccer player and he got a great merit scholarship at a D3 college.
1: That's what I did to go to college. What I played at Wash U. For your basketball, you got a merit scholarship? Yeah, because yeah, I played at a Division three school, Washington University in St. Louis. We were in University of Chicago's uh, athletic conference. We played them twice a year, and m- most of my tuition was need-based and merit-based.
0: That is so
1: cool. There's not, I mean, but there's not an athletic scholarship in Division three, but, you know, they want to be able to field... Teams. So most of the kids that play sports at WashU receive financial aid of some type.
0: Were you told that when you got in? Like you're admitted, yes. and this is how much we'll pay towards your tuition? Yeah, absolutely.
1: I think that's probably the case for every student. That... Okay. Yeah. yeah so a
2: few years ago, they right changed now. the FAFSA. So you used to fill it out in, this, in January or after you'd done your taxes. Um, a few years ago, they, they changed it, so now you fill it out in the fall. So you're submitting your FAFSA and your CSS profile with your college application and your financial aid award comes with your acceptance letter.
0: Um, I have so many questions. I know Sarah does too. And I want you to go over strategy and like what people like us are supposed to do. But I feel like I saw this on your website. And of course, it was like my among my top five questions that I knew I needed to ask you before even looking at your website. And I think it's probably the number one that you get. But it can never be stressed enough how many people think that you your kids are penalized if you save for college, that they will not qualify for any financial aid if you have a 529. I couldn't listen to this whole thing, all the amazing things you're talking about. If I had that in the back of my mind the whole time, like this is all for naught because if I have that, my kid's not going to qualify. So let's just tackle that first and then
2: go on to your strategies. Yeah. So, So when the FAFSA calculates your ability to pay for college, they look at parents' income, parents' assets, students' income, and students' assets. Parents' income is, in almost every case, 95% of your ability to pay. Um, Assets are calculated at 5.64% of their value. So so every $1,000 you save will, will reduce your financial aid eligibility by $56. So, so there is a tiny, tiny
0: loss. <laughs> Can you repeat that? For every $1,000 you save in a 529, mm-hmm. that translates to a $56 reduction in the financial aid your child might qualify for. Correct. Correct. And yet we are
2: freaking
0: out about <laughs>
2: Yeah. And people, you know, people engage in so many shenanigans to not save for college. The more you save, the more choices your child is going to have.
0: That just got rid of all of my excuse to like, you know, I just don't want to jeopardize her. It's really, it's really a comfortable defense from feeling the pressure of having to save for college to think that like, you're do- actually doing a good thing
2: for your kid by not yeah, doing it. Yeah, so you well. are giving them more choices. The more you save, the more choices your student will have. And that's okay. really what we want, isn't it? We want our child to have good college choices. So my daughter's a perfect example. She was a great student. You know, we call her a D1 mathlete. Um, she had a full tuition scholarship to University of Oregon. We live in Oregon. Um, which which was in many ways a great option for her. It was not a good school fit for her. Had we not saved, that would have been her choice. Because we'd saved, she was able to go to University of Chicago, which offered her also a very generous package, but not room and board only, which is what, you know, which is what Oregon would have, would have cost her. And, and she's had a phenomenal time there. She's had experiences there that she wouldn't have had access to, um, at university of Oregon. She's met people from all over the world. She, um, you know, their student to teacher ratio is tiny. So all their classes are these little tiny discussion classes where, you know, she doesn't have to come home and talk to us about Nietzsche and... <laughs>
0: Wait, I went to a small school. I went and learned all about Foucault in my small private liberal arts college, and I came home to try to talk to my parents about all of it. So it's not mutually (laughs) exclusive, but I get your point. Um, Okay, so by having the savings, it didn't jeopardize the amazing offers that she was getting based on merit and need, whatever. You don't have to go into that, but that it gave her the extra oomph to be able to then have some choices even when she was getting
2: aid offers. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, if if you if you if you want your child to have more choices, you need to save for college. It's college is too big of an expense not not to save for. And 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 frankly the people who it seems like talk the most about trying to, you know, not save to be eligible are the people who aren't going to get financial aid anyway. um, So, so you're so, so really you're shooting yourself in the foot by not, by not saving more importantly, you're, you're, you're curtailing your child's options by, by not saving.
0: All right. You're really laying it on thick here. Okay. Why don't we try to answer your question? I mean, because we talk about it in this podcast all the time, like what our priorities are supposed to be because like, you know, I'm still paying my own student loans. So as I told Sarah, like it feels crazy that I'm supposed to be paying, chipping away at my own student loans while saving for hers, while doing retirement and my emergency fund. It's sort of like I mean, the whole thing is just one big bucket going, you know, there's all these buckets. So I do think that it's interesting to think about like where that shows up in your priorities and sort of the order of operations for where you get there and what in your answer to how do we save for college, how do we pay for college, where that shows up.
2: Yeah, so I think it's a great question. And it's one that, frankly, most of us struggle with, right, because there just aren't as many dollars as things we would like to Do with those dollars or things that we need to do with those dollars. So my rule of thumb is is this, if you don't have emergency savings, you're not, you don't have college savings. If you're not saving for retirement, you also shouldn't be saving for college. You know, retirement needs to be the first priority, but college is too big of an expense to, to totally overlook. So if you're, so once you've got emergency savings and you've started doing retirement savings, If you are not maxing out retirement, you shouldn't contribute more than 10% of what's going into retirement into college. So if you're saving $5,000 a year towards retirement, you can save $500 a year for college. If you want to save more for college, increase your retirement savings rate in in order to do that. If you're someone who's fortunate enough to be maxing out retirement, and still has extra dollars to save, that's when you can start looking at, um, at, at doing more more for college. I, I think a couple of things can be really helpful. You know, One is use surpluses, bonuses, gifts, stuff like that to fund college. So if people give your kid money for their birthday, take half of it and put it in their college savings account. It's gonna be more meaningful to them as an 18 year old than it is as a five year old. Um, if you get a bonus use that to increase your your 529 contribution and I think too every year on your child's birthday that's a great time to sort of you know as you're thinking about the year that's been and planning the party it's a great time to think about the person that you want them to be and the opportunities that you want them to have and to look at your budget and say hey maybe there's another five dollars a month that we can scrape out to add to their add to their 529 every little bit helps in fact there's been, um, a bunch of research done on this topic. And, and one of the things that was very clear was that um, kids who have college savings enroll and, gra- and graduate at higher rates than those who don't, even when it's a minuscule amount of savings. So $500 of savings is, 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 is a number that would make a child more likely to enroll in college and more likely to graduate from, from, from college. Um, and of course, you can argue cause and effect there, right? Because of course, if I <laughs> if I'm saving for college, I'm probably talking with my kid about college and probably creating that expectation that they're going for that they're that they're going to college too. But um, but part of the reason why we have almost two trillion dollars in outstanding student loan debt is that people don't save for college and then expect their kid to go. And you know, kids can't come up with eighty thousand dollars or you know, oh my god. Yeah. Hundred thousand dollars to we can't.
0: I'm also this just makes me think so much about first generation college kids. Like both of my parents went to college. Like that path was a known one. Sarah, I don't know for you. What did both of your parents go to college? Uh one of my parents went to college. One of your So it was enough. There was somebody had walked that path before. It was a known culture. Like it was and that is also such a big part of I feel like that those same studies that looked at if there was a 529 also did one at least one parent in the household go to college so because this is even more intimidating it's like this experience that someone might not have had their parents didn't have it and it costs $300,000 <laughs> and we're supposed to I'm sorry. so I'm curious if you if there's anything in this planning Maybe it's the same as everybody else, but for first generation students, where it's that are going to be going to college when they're, you know, their parents didn't have the opportunity or lived in a different place,
2: how that changes the perspective a little bit. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think it's, I think that's one of our huge societal failings is that we've really put the onus on the family to make education a priority at the same time that we've transitioned to this knowledge-based economy where a college degree is really essential for the vast majority of of, of well-paying jobs. It's 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 tough for students who don't have family support. Um, whether it's because this is a totally unknown entity to the family, or whether it's because the family just chooses not to, not to support them. That being said, there are lots and lots of great programs out there that can help students get through the college um, the college process. Um, you know, most states offer some form of free community college um, that, you know, where, where students can at least get their first couple of years um, done at no cost. Um, I think the other thing that a lot of students aren't aware of is that the um, the more um, the more selective, the more prestigious private colleges are often really aggressively trying to enroll first generation and non traditional students, and um, and those are the students that they've reserved the most generous financial aid packages for. So you know, Stanford, U Chicago, most of the Ivy Leagues offer full rides to students whose family incomes are below certain are below certain thresholds so
0: yeah and my my undergrad uh liberal arts school had need blind admissions so which i understood as if you get in they'll figure out a way to pay for it if your family can't
2: so that's not quite
0: (laughs) glad i didn't say their name. wrong
1: caitlin (laughs) wrong it's, but
2: it's a common, it's a common misperception. So,
0: ah, see, I'm doing it useful for all of our listeners, my misunderstandings, <laughs> as usual.
2: So need-blind admissions really just means we're not going to consider your ability to pay in deciding whether or not to accept you. There's a subset of colleges that have need-blind admissions that meet 100% of, of need through scholarships and grants. So there are definitely colleges that, that do that the vast majority don't though so it's really important as you're you know as you're going through the college research process and starting to look at colleges that you're doing those net price calculators and seeing what families like yours pay to send a student to, um, to that college and you can also just google um, colleges that meet hundred percent of financial need and you will get oh. um, a list Let's just cut to the chase here.
0: Let's, we'll just post that list.
2: (laughs) Done. I, you know, I wouldn't just take it on faith that that's always true because colleges can change their financial aid policies at at any point. Um, But those are definitely colleges that that students who don't have... You know, from families of limited means should be looking at those at those colleges, because there are great, great opportunities um, there. And you know when I look at the resources that my daughter has at U Chicago um, available to her and um, and compare them to what my son has at a public school. All the same things are there for for all the students. But in those small private schools, they're really pushing it down on you and making sure that you get it and take full advantage um, of it. Whereas at a public school, it's kind of incumbent on you as the student to go out and find those things and, um, and, make, them, and make them available
1: to yourself. Yeah. Um, and I just want to say, I think this message is really, really important for a lot of parents out there because, I mean, so often I see that the high list price discourages kids from applying to a whole swath of schools, right? That whether it's Ivy League or, um, you know, more expensive private schools because you just look at the list price. And so I think this message is incredibly important to like really emphasize for people from all um, income brackets and asset bases that, that you, what, what you see is not what you're going to pay. So I just wanted to thank you for that because I think it's incredibly important.
2: Yeah, I agree. It's so it's such an important piece of it. I mean, I see so many people who are like, oh, well, we're just not going to bother with those because blah blah blah. Or people are like, wait, you're the college financial lady, and your daughter goes to UChicago, like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, because
0: right. like you got it wrong, <laughs>
1: yeah. or because you sold oh, yeah. so many books that you know that it... <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was before her book even came out. That's her right. Went there.
1: That's true. Um, yeah.
0: So can a kid, okay, you're going to have to tell us about 529s and what you think about them and all that. When you're telling us about that, can you tell me if a kid can start their own? You know, a first generation kid who's like, I have a high school job, whatever. I mean, high school seems late. So I get that you'd want to do it earlier, but can't, how old do you have to be to open one? How does that work?
2: Yes. I think, I think the account owner has to be 18. um but a parent can open a 529 and the student can fund it okay okay and like here in Oregon um our our tax benefit um our tax benefit for 529s is a refundable tax credit and so kids can contribute to their own 529 file an Oregon tax return and get a tax credit for it whoa that's a good deal okay so, yeah, so 529 is a dedicated college savings account. Um, it has a couple of benefits. Um, everybody gets tax free growth and withdrawals for qualified higher education expenses, which is tuition, room and board, books and supplies, required fees, a computer, all kinds of things like that. Many states also offer a tax benefit for contributions, all but about 15 offer tax benefits. Of course, some of those 15 are the biggest states. So. Okay. <laughs> but the thing that's really great about 529s that isn't talked about as much is when you take a distribution from it. So so a lot of people say, well, I would rather save in a taxable account because I don't know if my kid is going to go to college. or." Um. Right, I hear that a lot. And so when you take money out of a taxable account, you are liable for capital gains taxes on it but that also adds to your income
0: so the scenario here is i say i'm
2: not going to do a 529
0: i'm going to do a roth ira to save for the college because then i can use the money for the college or not but then they do go to college i'm taking out that tuition and whatever i take out of the roth i'm then I'm then paying income taxes. For. You're not
2: paying income taxes on it if it's in a Roth IRA, but you are reporting it as income on your FAFSA. And with income, 47 cents of every dollar is considered available to pay for college once you get over certain thresholds. So, so people who put $5,000 in a Roth IRA because they don't want it to be an asset on the FAFSA you know, they're saving about, you know, $27 in assets. <laughs> um, but they're, um, well, maybe $100 in assets. Um, but when they take it out, they're, um, they're losing aid eligibility by 47% of the value of what they're, of what they're taking out because that gets added to their income. So that's getting into okay. the weeds of how the FAFSA works. But if you have a taxable brokerage account for example, so you set up an individual account or a joint account and you're going to use that to save for college, chances are good that if it's not 2022 and you've been saving in the account for a long time, you have have capital gains. So when you take that money out to pay for college, first of all, you're going to pay capital gains taxes on it. So you're reducing the the total number of dollars available to pay for college. But secondly, that's gonna flow through to your tax return as income, all of that gain. And that is added to your ability to pay for college. When you take money out of 529, neither of those things happens. So 529 is super efficient, not just for tax-free growth and distributions, but for financial aid as well.
1: That's really interesting to think about how the withdrawals from the different accounts hit your income statement versus your assets I can you do just I know this is like a minuscule point but I'm so fascinated by this so if you made um, a payment directly from a retirement account to the school does that still? Is that still reported as a withdrawal from that account that shows up? On I'm Not your... sure that you can do that.
2: <laughs> no. um, I mean, I think if you're taking money out of your Roth IRA, you you're taking money out of your Roth IRA. You're getting the money, yeah. and then you're sending a check to um, to to the school.
1: So you're, taking does... <laughs> yeah, you're taking a cash distribution.
2: Yeah, you're taking a cash distribution and and sending it on. But a lot of people don't understand how that formula how that formula works. Um, where where you do even though it's tax even though a Roth IRA you know taking your contributions back out of your Roth IRA is a tax free distribution it is still considered income in the fafsa so the fafsa and the css profile look at total income not taxable income not adjusted gross income so you include all that untaxed income. So not just Roth IRA contributions, but contributions to your retirement plan get added back to, you know, pre-tax retirement contributions get added back to your, um, to, to your income. So they're
0: just looking at all the dollars coming in. They don't care what's taxed because we're making choices what to do with those dollars. We're making a choice to put it in a, um, correct.
2: Correct. You do get to subtract your actual tax liability from your income. <clears throat> so that's where Roth IRA contributions can help, right? Because you're basically, as long as it's in an income year that counts for the FAFSA. And tell me if we're going too far into the weeds of how the FAFSA works. but <laughs> um, The the first income year for your FAFSA is the year that starts January 1st of sophomore year of high school. So FAFSA use what's called prior prior income year. So so when you're a senior in high school filing the FAFSA for your freshman year in college, you're using the income year that went from January 1st of freshman, of sophomore year to, to December 31st of junior year. To put that in a little bit more concrete terms, it's fall of 2022 right now, a student who's applying for college in, to start in 2023 is using their 2021 tax return to to do that.
0: Wow.
2: So 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 you have these FAFSA income years that don't necessarily line up with college years. You know, most of them are before you even get to before you even get to college. Where this matters for parents who are thinking about taxable accounts or Roth IRAs is if you have multiple children, it's a long ways out in the future before you can start tapping into that money without reducing your eligibility for financial aid. Now, not all families are eligible for financial aid. Even among families that are eligible for financial aid, some students choose to attend colleges where they get merit scholarships instead, in which case in which case, all of that is moot. But as a parent who's you know, maybe has a 10 year old and is planning how to save for college. You really don't know. And, and so I always feel like if you have two college educated parents who have a couple of kids, the likelihood that no one in that household is going to college is pretty low. And so a 529 is a far superior savings vehicle. For college than than any of the others. The other thing is, you know, you can use 529s for a lot of things. You can use it for trade schools. You can use it for um, community colleges. You know, it's not just limited to four-year colleges. Um, My friend's son is um, is an apprentice electrician, and he's using his 529 for all of his coursework and buying his electrical, you know, his um, tools and things that he needs. Um, That's all coming from his 529. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and a client whose son didn't go to college and had five twenty nine dollars, he took the distribution because he needed a car for his job. So he took a distribution. Um, he did pay income tax and penalty on the growth in the account, but he wasn't making any money. So his tax rate was really was really quite low, and has, you know, it maybe wasn't his parents first choice of, of where he would have spent the money, but he was able to buy a car with his 529 money. And he was, he was thrilled to have that. So that's so helpful because you started this whole
0: series with like, a lot of people don't want 529s because they say like, what what if my kid doesn't go to college? And then we're stuck with this chunk of money in an account we can't use. And essentially you're saying that's not true. The kid can use it. There's a wide range of things. If they don't end up doing it, there's a tax consequence, but not big enough to be a deterrent from using
2: it at all exactly because you have a lot of choices for how you do it and you can even just you know set the money aside for a grandchild if your kid doesn't go to college i heard of one i heard of one parent who made himself the beneficiary of his kids 529 there was some extra dollars in it and he found a college that had a um, pga golf camp (laughs) (laughs) That's so clever. And he uses he used his kids five twenty nine so he could take off glasses. ok.
0: I think I from the scarcity mindset, I'm like, I'm not putting money in an account that won't definitely be used like in the way that it was supposed to be used in, in the amount of years it was supposed to be used. So there's like a fear around that. Like this isn't just like funny money that like I'm like, where should I put it? It's like those are active dollars that are not going into my Roth IRA or in my own investing accounts. So there's something about Being like that, it's not like, oh, just forget. Oh, did I still have that $30,000 in that account? I totally forgot. Like, I will be thinking about that money every day it's in there. And and that's that's why it's
2: important to balance your college savings with your other financial priorities.
1: Well, that's what I wanted to come back to about kind of like a big picture approach to paying for college, because you mentioned this at the beginning, right? That, okay, like if you need to have retirement planning on track first, right and then figure out what you know your rule of thumb the 10 percent that then could be kind of set aside for education whether it's a 529 or 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 otherwise right so um so how do you uh, how do you guide people through kind of i don't know just like this pretty basic question that you must get all the time which is like how do parents figure out like how much to spend like what can they afford or how do you help the kids figure out like how much they can afford.
2: So there's a few pieces of the college funding puzzle. I mean, I think there's this, there's this sense that I have to have the whole cost of college saved um, before I go to college. Most people use a combination of savings, you know, spending out of pocket, tax credits if they're eligible, potentially student loans, outside scholarships that students can get um, as well. I think a more helpful approach than saying, well, college costs $80,000 a year if you want to go to private school. And so four times 80 is, you know, so that's this much per month. Figure out what works for you for saving. As you go through your kid's life, you can make some projections about how much that savings rate is going to result in when they hit 18. The nice thing about college is you might not know what it's going to cost, but you do know when it's going to happen. Then look at your whole financial picture and say, okay, what can we on an annual basis contribute to college in addition to our savings? And then you can say, are we eligible for the American Opportunity Tax Credit? Because that's another $2,500 Twenty five hundred dollars a year, and that's for um, households with adjusted gross income um, under one hundred sixty thousand dollars if they're married, or um, eighty thousand if they're um, if they're single. Am I okay with my student taking out student loans to pay for undergrad? Now, I know there's there's so much negative info out there about student loans that, you know, basically they're a one-way ticket to the, to the poorhouse. And I know there are plenty of people, you know, plenty of adults like Caitlin who are balancing, you know, saving for their own kids' college with paying for their own student loans. The direct student loan for undergraduates is, is a perfectly reasonable tool if it's what closes the gap for you on on college funding, there's a cap on how much students can borrow every year. The interest rates are are pretty reasonable. The maximum amount you can borrow over four years is twenty seven thousand dollars, and that translates into about a three hundred and twenty five dollar monthly payment for ten years, and then you're done with it. You know, if that's the difference between going to college and not going to college, that's a then taking out that loan is a good choice. So all of this, by way of saying. Those are sort of the layers of of the college funding, you know, of the college funding plan. And so you as a parent, you might, you know, say my kid's eight years old. Here's what I'm saving. Here's what I think I could pay out of pocket. Here's kind of these other pieces that gives me a budget of about this much when they get to college. Now, are there things in my situation that might change? Yeah. I might, you know, assuming I continue working, my income is probably going to grow. Um, I'm not going to be p- paying for club soccer anymore, or, you know, I'm not going to be paying for violin lessons. So that's a little, you know, a little bit more money that would, that would go into the pot. If that doesn't seem like it's going to work for you, if that's not going to give you the set of choices that you want, then you need to look at your overall picture and say okay where can i find some additional money for savings what other types of scholarships might my kid be eligible for you know does your employer offer scholarships what types of scholarships does um, are available locally in the community you know whether it's things like rotary or you know my daughter found a terrific scholarship that her high school computer science teacher um, recommended that she apply for. So she gets five thousand dollars a year from that. My son plays on an esports team in college, and he gets a scholarship for that. So there's, oh you know, yes, every teenage boy's dream. He has a scholarship for playing it's video. Like
0: he can't get in trouble for it anymore because he's making money from it for college. It's like the best scam kids came up with ever. I So let me understand these three tranches. So the first is like savings now. My kid's eight, so the savings I put in a 529 now. So that's the one sort of area that can help her. The second might be... Money that, she takes out a student loan, those have to start be paid after she, assuming she graduates in four years, like the next year after that. And those payments might, the max those payments might be from what we understand with dollars now is around between three and $400. Well, I might be making enough more by then where I don't have an extra $400 a month right now to put in her 429, but I'd have it then to help her pay off her loans every month and so that my future projection for my income could help us there
2: or to help just support her on an
0: ongoing basis with with out of pocket i could pay for her books so that wouldn't come from the 529 i pay cash from my income for her books and then and then oh sorry so i mixed the two so the other one would be student loans that she takes out and then i help do the payments there because i might have more money my retirement might be more secure then and so I'm making more and can help at that point along the process.
2: And I think that's a really important point. I mean, so many people, you know, have a baby and they're like, oh my gosh, we have to start paying for college right now, you know, saving for college right now. And they've got, you know, $2,000 a month of childcare expenses and right. diapers and kids right. who outgrow yeah. everything, you know, every 15 minutes. It's great if you can start something up right then, um, you know, even if it's five or $10 a month, but Give yourself some grace. Give yourself permission to say, I just, you know, I, I know, given that I am spending this large chunk of money on childcare right now, and that money is gonna, that expense is gonna go away. I know that I can probably make up for this in the future. But be disciplined and intentional about intentional about making that change in in the future. And 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 that's part of the reason why I think it's a great idea you know, even when your kids are tiny, figure out what's the minimum monthly contribution that your five to, that your state's 529 plan accepts and just set that up. It's usually like $5. Um, sometimes it's as high as $20. And sometimes when it's $20, you can make it quarterly instead of monthly. And just, you know, figure out where you're going to carve that small amount of dollars out because at a minimum you're doing that and it makes it so much easier to go back at some point in the future and say oh gosh you know what money isn't as tight as it as it was a little while ago let me just increase this and then you're not like okay now i gotta figure out which account am i gonna set up and where do i do it you know then it's just a matter of going in where you already are um and 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 building and building from there
0: question for you about ut at university of texas at austin has this program and i really know few details about it maybe sarah knows more but it's essentially like you can pay current tuition now we'll fit will fix the rate for the tuition now and then whenever your kid goes you don't have to pay the difference between if you pass now what do you think about that approach
2: yeah, so that's what's called a prepaid tuition program, and it's a type of five twenty nine. Um, and and basically, instead of getting market returns based on the investment portfolio you choose, you're buying tomorrow's tuition at today's prices. I think they I think they're a good choice for a portion of your dollars. Um, they tend to have some, some limitations and they're especially good when you're really close to college, because if you're in a normal investment portfolio, 529, you know, they're going to move you into something really conservative where you're primarily going to be in, you know, in, in short-term bonds, you're not going to get much in the way of return there. Um, Whereas these, you'll, you'll get inflation, (laughs) you know, inflation adjustments to it. So I think those are really great. They tend to be somewhat limited um, in a couple of ways. One is it can only be used for tuition, so not for room and board. So chances are you're going to need some separate savings for room and board. Um, The other is for a child who's really young. So if your typical tuition is, uh, you know, your typical tuition inflation is somewhere between three and five percent, a young child is probably, you know, if it's not 2022, if it's not 2009, you're you're gonna get um, growth that is in excess of tuition inflation. You're saying that if you invested that same amount
0: of money in a 529 that's not attached to a specific school or fixes the tuition rates, taking apart our current economic environment where <laughs> it's the stock market isn't behaving the way that we would like it to. Um, that your gains from those investments would be high enough in many markets that it wouldn't, this you wouldn't actually, you'd lose money by doing it the other way.
2: Yeah, typically you will get, in most years you will get higher returns in, um, you know, for a young child in an age-based 529 investment portfolio than you will in a guaranteed tuition program. But the guarantee or sorry, with the a prepaid tuition program where the prepaid tuition program is great is when you're close to college, because you're going to you're going to keep up with inflation with no risk to what your to what your account is is worth and um, there's like I said, there's a few limitations to those programs. You know, one being um, typically they can only be used for tuition. There are some exceptions to that, but um, mostly they're only um, for tuition. The other is the programs are really limited and they're either limited by geography or limited by schools. So um, so most 529s are run by states and there's a small number of states that have a prepaid tuition option in addition to their regular 529 savings plan. Um, Texas is one of them. Washington is one of them. I think Pennsylvania is one. And, and in many cases... You, you can either only participate if you're a resident of the state or if the student is a resident of the state. In some cases, you don't get the full value of the tuition increase if you attend a school other than one of the in-state schools. There's another prepaid tuition plan called the Private College 529, and that has a pool of about 200 private colleges that participate in it. And if you contribute to those and your kid goes to one of those colleges, then you get that specific college's tuition inflation. If you end up going somewhere else, you get a much lower rate that's something like one and a half percent, which would be better than what your regular 529 did this year, but uh, um, most years, but not necessarily all, all that you need. The other thing with them is a lot of them require you you to have the dollars in the plan for three years before you can um, before you can take it out, so they can be a really good choice. You just have to understand what the limitations of the plan are when when you go into it. Okay, so I have a few like rapid
0: fire questions. I mean, my question will be rapid fire. The answer might be longer. But first of all, the question that maybe you can't answer, but like, will tuitions like list prices continue to skyrocket? Like. I know there's all sorts of forecasting, but most of the parents that I talked to, they're like, this can't continue because we see the comparison to what tuition was, um, in state private, whatever, when we went to now. And then if we add another 10, 15 years on that, when our kids are going to go, we're like the, it's ridiculous. Like we will all own our own private yacht by then too. Like how is it physically possible to fit that number of digits in a line that with tuition? Do you have any sense for what might happen there?
2: So I would say a couple of things. One is sadly, there's a line of people out the door waiting to pay full price for a lot of these colleges. And so I don't see at the, at the high end, I don't see that changing. I don't see the list price changing. Um, I do see the situation we're in right now where the net price really hasn't budged. The average net price hasn't budged in, in about a decade. And I think that will probably continue to be the case because there's, you know, Although there is a line out the door of people willing to pay $82,000 a year for certain colleges, there are plenty of people for whom that's completely off the table. So I think list price will keep going up, net price will probably keep staying pretty flat. On the public school side, you know, where tuition, where, where cost of public education really started going up was where we started capping property taxes, State budgets pay for education and healthcare primarily and, and prisons and, and stuff like that. And higher ed is the one thing that states pay for that has an alternate funding source called the people who use that particular service. Right. Similarly, there are tons and tons of scholarships available at at public universities that that keep the costs. Low, but just like you know, just like the private schools, you know, Berkeley doesn't have to offer big scholarships to get people.
0: Right, people will to go pay to school there.
2: Yeah, people will say- gladly people will gladly pay it. When I was in
0: high school, my dad told me that if I got in, he'd pay. He'd figure out a way to pay for Stanford, and then he found out how much it was, and he's like, "There's a lot of really good schools out there." <laughs> 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 I was very happy, and I went to a great school. But I, I now I'm like, Dad, that was the list price. You have no idea. Was it on the volleyball team? But who knew? Um, okay, so I get that. Like the money has to pay for these universities somehow. If it's not coming from property taxes. It goes tuition. Um, yet we still can't let that be a deterrent to be like I'll never be able to afford
2: even a state school. I think one of the one of the tough things in our system is we've we've let the Stanford's and Harvard's of the world control the narrative around college. And the truth is, the vast majority of colleges are actively trying to recruit and enroll students. And the way they do that is by discounting their tuition. And um, and and so you know if you're willing to look beyond that, you know very top level, you're going to find lots and lots of good choices out there and you know some of those choices may be things like free community college and then transferring to a four-year college or dual enrollment programs where you're living on campus at the four-year college but attending a community college your first couple of years and paying community college tuition it might be accumulating ap and ib credits while you're a high school student so so that you can graduate in in three years or it might just be doing all the legwork to find colleges that want to enroll students like you Perfect segue because I have a question is, is
0: finding financial aid, grants, scholarships, is it the kids' job? Is it our job as parents? Is it the high school guidance counselor's job or is it the college that they get into's job? Like, who's because for me, it was there was like one book in the guidance counselor's office that was like well thumbed, that was from, you know, four years before that had like literal post office boxes where you'd have to light a redder, letter of inquiry. That was, there are very few kids that were organized enough to do that. So I went to college just having no idea about this realm. And uh, so I'm just curious from your perspective, Who is it all of our jobs? How is this supposed to happen? When does it start? So I
2: think it's something that's important for parents and 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 kids to do together. Um, I, I think an important role for the parent is clarity and transparency about their, their ability to, um, Financially support the child's college. Um, And I think that is best done in a goal oriented way, which is not you can only go to a public school because that's all we can afford, but it may be more like we can, you know, we can afford it's a priority for us that you graduate from undergraduate with no student loans. And we have enough money that you can do that at one of our public schools, you might be able to find other scholarships or other colleges that will meet that budget. And we're happy to support you in that journey of of finding them. There are lots and lots of great tools out there to know what college costs. And on my website, how to pay for college, I have a worksheet that is downloadable. It has a line in it for you to enter what the net price calculator from the college says it's likely to cost you to to go there. So, So when you apply to a college and file the FAFSA or the CSS profile, if needed, you're automatically applying for financial aid at that college. And most colleges have scholarships that they award automatically, without additional applications. An additional step for students, once you've done the net price calculator, is go and look at the college's financial aid website and see if there are additional scholarships that you might be eligible for um, and what the criteria are for getting it. You know, does it require an application or is it the kind of thing where, you know, we have scholarships for students who've attended a high school within a 20 mile radius of our campus and you just have to document that you've done that. You know, so that's those are all ways you can do that. Students should also, you know, students who want to attend colleges that are outside the family budget should be looking at what types of outside scholarships are out there too. So outside scholarships are offered by third parties. It could be, you know, the parent's employer. It could be you know, this this group that my daughter's computer science teacher put her in touch with. There are loads and loads of scholarships for that. The best place to start looking for those is your high school guidance counselor's office, because they'll have tons and tons of local scholarships or scholarships that are only available for kids in your community or at your high school. You know, there, there are big websites like scholarly and FastWeb and whatnot that have huge databases of scholarships, but they have huge numbers of people who are looking for those scholarships. So
0: overwhelming. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. And so go for the local ones that the applicant pool is much smaller. I mean, my, my kid's high school had a a scholarship for the women's tennis team. You know, there's like 12 people on the tennis team and they're not all (laughs) seniors.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's the pool you want to be in. Yeah. Oh my god.
1: Um, this is so Sarah, do you have any other questions? I just want to say thank you, Anne, for coming and sharing all of this with us. It's been just so much good information. Oh my gosh, wow. thank you for having me. And it's been relieving. so much fun. And I just want to
0: assure everybody, we're going to put like, the link to your book, the link to your website, your professional website, all that stuff that has all these resources in the show notes um, so that everybody, because just I, I can't emphasize enough, the generosity that you have to share all this information is yeah, just it's amazing. like so many people need it. And as you say, the people that need it the most are the, the ones that can, can't afford to pay someone to give it to them. Um, and so that's just part of our ethos. And I just love that all of that is there. And I just always want something to refer to people that I'm talking to at the supermarket or at my kid's school, like, oh my God. And it's such an easy website, how to pay for college. Oh, did I say it right this time? You how did. to pay for yes, it's howtopayforcollege.com. Howtopayforcollege.com. The, the last thing I wanted to do, I mean, we talked about when a kid was born, like for those parents who have teenagers now who just had a chaotic, there were divorce, whatever, like financial stability is something they're still working towards. Is there anything we can share about that kind of guilt, the pressure that feels like the stakes are so high to be able to get your kid to be more successful than you were or as successful and that paying for college is like our job as parents like but if you weren't in a financial situation to be able to like have that then it's not the end of the story
2: it's absolutely not the end of the story so there was a great study that was done um about people who were successful as adults and and what about their college experience made them feel successful it's called the purdue Gallup um poll and they they surveyed they surveyed adults who, who considered themselves successful and, um, and to try to tie it back to their college experience and say what about college made them successful. And what they found is it had nothing to do with what college they went to. It wasn't about public versus private. It wasn't about a, you know, selective versus unselective. It was about having some specific experiences when they were in college. And those were things like Feeling like a professor cared about you, um, having a work experience that was related to your career, where you got to, where you got to apply what you were learning in college. It was working on a project that took a semester or longer to complete. It was engaging in extracurriculars. So all of those kinds of things are available at so many different yeah. colleges. There are so many good paths available to to students. So the fact that you haven't you know, massively saved for college doesn't mean that a successful adulthood and a successful education aren't available to your student. It does maybe mean that you need to do a little bit more legwork to find out what the best Options are to navigate the system at the lowest cost. You know, there there is this tendency to feel like my Too failures late. have constrained my child. You know, have have um, constrained my child to failure, and and it's not the case. You you do have you do have good choices out there, um, and a, you know a great first step is 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 having. A transparent and goals based conversation with your student about what you can and can't do to support them and you know and that that you are their ally in this journey and that you're going to help it make it help make it happen for them and and you're going to help them find the resources that will get them through college and, and out the other end.
0: And those free resources, in addition to your website, howtopayforcollege.com, are their high school guidance counselors who are free public school counselors that do this every single year and are there to answer these questions and know know the answers. Yeah.
2: And at a bare minimum, you know, because I think a lot of guidance counselors get a bad rap, but they are, they are terrific people who are often just, you know, desperately overworked based on the number of students that they have to, um, that they have to serve. But at a bare minimum, they can tell you, you know, how do you access free community college? How do you access scholarships? What state grant programs are available? Because oftentimes families who aren't eligible for aid on a federal you know on the federal scale are within their state you know think of high cost of living states like california new york and whatnot that have additional funds available to students so at a minimum your guidance counselor can connect you with your state's programs um, so that you can understand all the different options that are um, that are open to you
0: okay so great thank you so much ann
2: oh my gosh it's been my pleasure thank you for having me
0: Hey before we go, check out Anne's website, thecollegefinanciallady.com. She offers a how to pay for college masterclass. Highly recommend. And Women on the Verge listeners get a 10% discount if they sign up for it with the code WOTV10.
1: Do you have any dumb questions about investing or finance? Ask us on our website, womenontheverge.com. If your partner is making you ask for money, giving you an allowance or not letting you know about family income, this could be financial abuse. Learn more at thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-SAFE. This episode was edited by our co-producer,
0: Kelly West, and our music is by Bad Bad Hats and Devmo. I know the first thing you notice is that i covered in gold. The trip at the wrist, it could turn a hot bitch cold. To get what you want in life, girl, you gotta be bold. No, die rich, die and
1: I this podcast contains general information that is not suitable for everyone. The information contained here should not be construed as personalized investment advice. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. There is no guarantee that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast will come to pass. Investing in the stock market involves gains and and losses and may not be suitable for all investors. Information presented herein is subject to change without notice and should not be considered as a solicitation to buy or sell any security.